Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome everyone to Truth and Justice. Since we seem to have gained a bunch of new listeners from the UK who are here to hear about this case, I should also say I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and welcome. Today I'm going to begin our breakdown of the murder of Jody Jones and the potential wrongful conviction of Luke Mitchell. This is the first international case that we've covered, and with that, there are a few things that I want to make clear right up front. Now, generally, I have the full case file and trial transcripts for the wrongful conviction cases that we cover before we start. That's not the case here. The only case documents that I've been able to find are the appeal documents, and I'm still starting to sort through all of those. So a lot of the information that I'm going to be sharing comes from online sources right now. And we're going to be building off some of the work that others have already done in this case over the last 20 years. For you new folks, our model here is all about crowdsourcing. So if you have information about the case or clarifications and corrections, please send them along. That's what we do here. We all work together to make sure we get the most accurate information out as possible. And the best place to do that is to join the official Truth and Justice podcast fans page on Facebook. That's where the majority of our conversations about cases happen. And with all that being said, let's go ahead and get right into it. In today's episode, I'm just going to lay out some background information. You're going to hear about the victim, Jody Jones. Her background and living situation leading up to the murder, which of course is where we always begin with victimology. Then I'm going to share some background about Luke Mitchell, the 14-year-old boy who was convicted of Jody's murder. Then I'm going to throw you a bit of a curveball and talk for a few minutes about the Black Dahlia murder. I'll explain why when we get there. But first things first, let me tell you about Jody Jones. Jody came from a working-class Scottish family in a small village called East Houses. Both of her parents worked for the Royal Mail. But Jody had kind of a difficult childhood, a really difficult childhood, actually. Now, she was 14 years old in 2003 when she was murdered. But before that, when she was just nine years old back in 1998, Jody's father, James Jones, took his own life. At that time, she was living in East Houses, which is just outside of Edinburgh, with her mother, Judy, her father, James, her brother, and sister, who were both older than her. Jody was the baby of the family. And the Joneses liked their Jays. We have the parents, Judy and James, the older siblings, Joseph and Janine, and of course, Jody. Five people, all with the double J names. Now, after James took his life, Judy struggled to take care of the family. She wasn't able to continue working. And Jody's older sister moved away to live with her grandmother in a village called Mayfield, 
which is not very far away. It's just the next village. But the trauma she'd experienced in East Houses was just too much for her, so she'd relocated to get away from it. I've seen conflicting reports online as to whether Janine had moved back in with her mother and siblings at the time of the murder, or if she was still living with her grandmother. And that'll become more important later on, but it's also important to point out, as I've looked through the maps, that Mayfield isn't very far at all. It's a walk from East Houses. So this was Jody's living arrangement at the time of her murder. She was living with her mother, her mother's partner, her brother Joseph, and possibly with her sister Janine. According to her mother, Jody was extremely close with her older sister. Judy used to refer to Janine as Jody's wee mentor. As Jody grew into her teenage years, she began pushing her boundaries a little bit. She had a rebellious nature about her. She started dyeing her hair different colors. You may see her with pink hair one day and green the next. And she became interested in heavy metal music. From what I've read, Metallica was one of her favorite bands. And that's interesting for a few reasons. One, because this story seems to already be going down the same path as the West Memphis 3 case. And also, Metallica really holds up. Damien, Jason, and Jesse had evidence presented at their trial about their Metallica t-shirts. And their case began in 1993, a decade before Jody's murder. And here we are in 2003, and Metallica is still on the playlist. But things got a little bit more serious than just music for Jody. Besides changing the way she dressed, the dyed hair, and the music she was listening to, she started experimenting with marijuana and alcohol. And remember, she's only 14 years old. She was in high school, but for context's sake, in the U.S., 14 years old equals 8th grade. Things are a bit different in Scotland. I was just doing some research, and their secondary school, or high school, spans from 6th grade to 12th grade. Children begin primary school at ages 4 or 5, and they move into secondary school when they're about 11 or 12. And I'm only pointing that out because you're going to hear that Jody was in high school, but if you live in the U.S., that's 9th through 12th grade, and Jody wasn't even a freshman yet. But although she's going through some struggles, Jody's generally considered a good kid. She's described as bright, level-headed, and headstrong. And she was really into art. She liked to paint and write poetry. She was a good student with a lot of promise. Now, I'm going to post some aerial photos on our website because I think you need to see it to fully grasp all of this. So both East Houses, where Jody lived, and New Battle, where Luke lived, are tiny little villages. East Houses is the bigger of the two, but it's for sure a small village. Between the two is a golf course, a patch of forest, and some agricultural fields. By road, the two villages are worlds apart. I mean, not really. It's probably three or four, maybe a five-mile drive to get from one to the other. But it's a long way around. But as the crow flies, they're only about three-quarters of a mile away from each other. And there's a footpath that connects them, the Rones Dyke Path. The path runs along the north edge of a farm field, and there's a stone wall along the north side of the path, separating it from the large patch of forest. From what I've read, the forest was an area where teenagers were known to hang out and drink and do drugs and get into all sorts of other mischief. But the Ronesdyke path will become critically important later on, since it serves as the connection between Jody and Luke. Neither of them were old enough to drive, and this less than a mile walk is all that stood between their villages. Both Jody and Luke attended the St. David's Roman Catholic High School in Dalkeith which is just north of New Battle, where Luke lived, and a quick drive around the golf course from East Houses, where Jody lived. And that's where Jody met Luke. 
Luke and Jody start dating, but she keeps it secret from her family, other than her sister Janine, who was 19 years old at the time. It was just a month before Jody was killed in May of 2003 when her mother finally met Luke. And it seems like they had similar interests, which is probably why they connected. They were both into the same type of music, both dressed in a style that you might describe as goth, and they were both experimenting with alcohol and marijuana. A few weeks before she was killed, Jody's sister told her mother that she had been doing drugs. And her mother obviously did not approve, so she grounded Jody. She essentially had zero social life for those weeks, which meant she wasn't able to see her boyfriend Luke at all. But on June 30th, Jody's mom finally ungrounded her. And with the restrictions lifted, the first thing Jody wanted to do was, of course, go see Luke. At around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, with the sun still high in the sky, Jody set off to the Roansdyke path to head to New Battle to see her boyfriend. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Luke Mitchell was born in July of 1988. So at the time of Jody's murder, he was just a few weeks away from turning 15 years old. The only information that I've been able to find about his family life at this point is that his parents separated in 1999 when Luke was 11 years old. And from that point forward, he lived only with his mother, Corrine, and his older sibling. It's interesting, in this case, so much attention has been paid to Luke's interests that there doesn't seem to be much reporting at all on the basics of his life. Now, that being said, I've been given the contact information from a couple of people that know this case better than anyone. So I'm hoping to update some of this next week with more information. From what I've been able to find so far, all I can tell you is that Luke is the youngest of two children. I can't even find the gender of his older sibling. It appears that up to the point of Jody's murder, Luke and his family lived pretty comfortably. That's no longer the case now, however. Luke, of course, is in prison, and his mother has literally given everything in defense of her son. Karina's living with what seems to be some pretty severe health issues in makeshift housing with no running water or heat. But back in 2003, things weren't so bad. Luke attended St. David's Catholic High School, and all accounts seemed to indicate that he was a good student, and he was one grade ahead of Jody. At his trial, the prosecution focused the attention of the jury onto what they referred to as his obsessions, leaning heavily on an obsession with Marilyn Manson which I'll get into in a minute. But already I'm getting reports from people over in Scotland 
that obsession hardly describes Luke's interest in Manson. According to the BBC, investigators found a copy of the Marilyn Manson DVD titled The Golden Age of Grotesque in Luke's room. And I was told today, but haven't yet confirmed, that Mitchell also had a Marilyn Manson poster in his room. And that appears to be the extent of his obsession. Luke was a self-described goth kid. He wore baggy clothes, he had long hair, remember he's 14 years old. He had 666 written on his school notebook and also reportedly scratched into his forearm. And one of his teachers at his Catholic high school had shown some concern about his writings in class. Some of the quotes from his school essays that I found cited by the BBC say, quote, So what if I am a goth in a Catholic school? So what if I dress in baggy clothes? Just because I'm more violent than others and cut myself, does that justify some pompous git of a teacher referring me to a psychiatrist? Just because I have chosen to follow the teachings of Satan doesn't mean that I need psychiatric help. End quote. There are also reports of him putting out cigarettes on his hand at parties, and he almost seemed to poke the tiger with his teachers, or at least one particular teacher. In one essay, he wrote, quote, People like you need satanic people like me to keep the balance. End quote. And yet, all the while Luke was writing things like this, he was still an above-average student. His writings sound like those of an angry teenager. But that's really not the Luke that Jody seemed to know. They were into a lot of the same things. Same type of music, same type of dress. They were both smoking marijuana and drinking. They were rebels, or as much of a rebel as you can be in the 8th grade. But Jody was head over heels for Luke. These two kids started dating in February of 2003, and Luke was Jody's first ever serious boyfriend. They were in love and doing their best to act like adults. The relationship had become sexual, and they were doing other adult things like the drinking and the smoking. Shortly before her murder, Jody wrote in her diary, quote, I think I'm actually in love with Luke. Not in a stupid way. I mean real love. God, I think I would die if he finished with me. If I'm crying, he hugs me and he strokes my face. He is just so sweet. No matter what he says, I believe him. End quote. As is often the case with young teenagers taking on whatever type of persona, it doesn't seem like what people saw on the outside really coincided with what Luke had going on on the inside. You see the kid with Satan written on his notebook, wearing black, baggy clothes, writing about the teachings of Satan, and you imagine this hardened person, someone with walls up, emotionless. But the best insight that we can get into who Luke really was are Jody's own words. He loved her and treated her with a softness that made her fall in love right back. The way Jody describes him under that rough exterior was nothing but kindness and gentleness. But that's not the image that was portrayed to the jury. The prosecution made Luke out to be a murderous monster. In this case, reminds me so much of Damien Eccles. Now, aside from what you all know about Damien from seeing him interviewed and appearing in documentaries, I've developed a genuine friendship with him over these last six years. Damien was a lot like Luke. For whatever reason, insistent upon portraying a certain type of image of himself to the people around him. I genuinely laugh sometimes when I see people talking about him on social media, like some dark and demented, twisted character. And all I can think about is how he had too many cats in his Harlem apartment because he couldn't stand to see the strays abandoned without food or water or anyone to love them. 
I think about the smile on his face as he sat there chair dancing during a Taylor Swift sing-along, or when, during the drag brunch at Obsessed Fest last year, he came up behind me and gave me a hug, smiling from ear to ear, and said, can't you just feel the joy resonating through this room? The entire time, wearing all black from head to toe, rocking out to Tay-Tay, like the Swifty to beat all Swifties. Damien truly is one of the kindest, gentlest, most genuine people that I've ever met. And just like Luke, you can't judge a book by its cover. But in this case, Luke's jury was bombarded with the cover. Now, there was some evidence presented at trial. I'm not claiming that there was no evidence, and we're going to get into all that stuff next week. But to set him up and knock him down was first to paint a picture of Luke, deeply disturbed and violent. They leaned heavily into his interest in Marilyn Manson, and there was good reason for that. They have no motive in this case. None. By all accounts, from what I've read, Jody and Luke were bursting at the seams with puppy love. And because Jody had just got ungrounded, they were exceptionally excited to see each other. It's hard to imagine a circumstance where the minute Jody's restrictions were lifted, the two of them planned to meet up right away, and somehow, in a matter of literally minutes, Luke decides to not just murder his girlfriend, but to mutilate her. At least that's the word that the prosecution uses. But how does the prosecution get there? How do they convince a jury that Luke would do that without any apparent motive? The answer is Marilyn Manson. Manson had painted some relatively famous watercolors depicting the murder of actress Elizabeth Short. Short was murdered and mutilated in 1947, a horrific crime that later came to be known as the Black Dahlia murder. She was an aspiring actress, although at the time of her death, at 22 years old, she hadn't actually landed a role yet. She became famous after her death because the crime scene was so gruesome that the newspaper coined the name Black Dahlia. There are lots and lots of true crime podcasts that will tell you all about her murder, so I'm just going to touch on how it relates to this case. I'll also give you a little trigger warning here because what I'm about to describe is extremely gruesome. First of all, I should point out that Elizabeth Short's murder has never been solved. The LAPD wrangled up over 150 suspects over the years. There have been multiple confessions and a lot of misinformation, but no one actually knows who kills her, which is bananas because it was done in such a public way. On January 15, 1947, in a vacant lot in the Lemurk Park neighborhood in Los Angeles, as the sun rose up, Short's body was discovered. The scene was like something out of a horror movie, worse than something out of a horror movie. She had literally been cut in half at the waist and drained of blood. Her body was completely nude, severed in two at the waist, and it appeared that the killer had washed her skin off, displaying her for the world to see. Her face had been slashed from the corners of her mouth to her ears, making it look like a giant, gross, bloody smile. There were cuts and stabs on her thighs and breasts, and massive chunks of flesh were cut off and taken away. The scene was absolutely horrifying. The killer pulled the lower half of her body a full foot away from the top half and tucked her intestines neatly underneath her lower half. The sick bastard who did this spent a lot of time posing Short's body, with her arms over her head bent at right angles and her legs spread apart and there was zero attempt to hide her body or delay discovery. Quite the opposite. 
She was put out on display right out in the open, just a couple of feet away from a public sidewalk. To be perfectly honest, the Black Dahlia crime scene photos are probably the worst I've ever seen in all my years of doing this work. And why does it all matter? Because the prosecution needed a motive. And the only way that they could connect dots for the jury to create a motive was to make a concerted effort to liken Jody's murder to Short's murder. They took a DVD and a poster, spun that into an obsession. An obsession with a man who painted this gruesome Black Dahlia scene. Therefore, Manson must also be obsessed with Dahlia. Luke's obsessed with Manson. Manson's obsessed with Dahlia. And then the final dot that the jury was meant to connect. Luke killed Jody to recreate Elizabeth Short's murder. To mutilate her body, cut her in half, strip her nude, and pose her for the world to see. Except... That's not what happened to Jody at all. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.